Praise the Lord. Tonight I'm going to start a series talking about the true nature of God. And I think it's really going to help you. Some people don't recognize this, but your impression of who God is, who you think He is, determines how you receive from Him. Some of you may not have thought about that. But if I was to just go through here, and if I could talk to each one of you individually and ask you things, I can guarantee you one of the reasons that your life is going the way that it is is because of concepts that you have about God that are incorrect. There's a lot of scriptures I could use to verify that, but let's, let's just turn over to one of them here in 2 Peter chapter 1, and let me start with this passage. 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 1 it says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of of our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This says the way that grace and peace is multiplied unto you is through the knowledge of God. That's an important piece of information. Did you know that most people today try and get grace and peace to increase in their life through prayer? Or there may be some of you that are at these meetings this weekend thinking that if you come here that I can pray for you and I can bring the peace and I can help you to achieve this and this and this. This scripture says the way that grace and peace is multiplied unto you is through the knowledge of God. Wrong knowledge produces wrong results. Matter of fact, I've got another teaching. I'm not going to go into that. But faith is based on knowledge. Wrong knowledge will always produce wrong faith. And so, if we aren't getting the desired results, I can guarantee you at the bottom of that someplace is a misconception, a misunderstanding about God and about the way that God deals with us. In the next verse it says according, and the word according means in the proportion to or to the degree of His his divine nature hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That says that all things, all things that pertain unto life and virtue are given unto us through the knowledge of Him. Everything. You know, if you have a need for healing in your body, you have a need to understand the nature of God, who He is. If you have a need for finances, you don't know God properly. And some of you may take what I'm saying and and take this as offensive and I'm condemning you or something like that. I'm saying this to help you. I'm saying that if we really knew God, if you really knew the nature and the character of God, did you know that unbelief and the worry and the fear that many of us deal with would not even be a factor if you knew how faithful God was, if you truly knew how much God loved you, If you really understood the passion of God, the faithfulness, the integrity of God, if you had these things established in your heart, I guarantee you fear, worry, care, frustration would be totally out of the picture. Right now, Jamie and I are having to deal with a person we love a lot who's just worrying and worrying and dealing with things. And they're a wonderful person. We love them. But you know what? It's because of a lifetime of having a misconception about who God is 
And we can sit there and tell them that God loves you and is going to take care of everything. But you know what? They're just reaping what they've sown. Let me say it this way, that if you think... This is probably the most dominant doctrine in the body of Christ today. That if you think that God sovereignly controls everything that goes on in this world, you are not going to have a very good impression of God. Now some of you, you may have missed that. And like I said, this is such a popular doctrine, some of you may think I'm preaching heresy within five minutes of starting this meeting. And I'm not going to teach on the sovereignty of God. I I would accept the sovereignty of God if you want to define sovereignty the way that the dictionary defines it, where it just means first in rank, order, or authority. I believe that God is the top of the food chain. I believe that nobody can tell God what to do. I believe that He is almighty. But do I believe that God causes everything that happens in this world? Absolutely not. Do I believe that everything that happens, they have to go to God and get permission before it can happen? Absolutely not. The Bible says in James chapter 4, From whence come wars and fightings among you? According to the sovereignty of God doctrine, they come from God, because God either causes or allows everything that happens. But the Bible says they come from your own lust that war in your members. It's not God that sends the wars. It's not God who causes things. I had somebody come and say, why did this person die? Why did God allow us? God didn't allow it. God made us not to have sickness. We're the ones that brought sickness into this world. Why do we blame God for people that die? Why do we blame God for babies that are born with deformities? Why do we blame God for failure? He's the one that created perfection. God didn't start all of this corruption and it's one of the worst, most damnable heresies in the body of Christ to blame God for every rotten thing that goes on. If you believe that God is the author of all of our problems and nothing can happen but what God allows it, then first of all, you got no right to be upset with me because I couldn't preach this if God didn't want me to preach this. Amen. You cannot defend that position. Somewhere you're going to draw a line and say, well, no, he's not the one that rapes all of these people and, and uh, murder. And no, he's not in charge. Well, either he is or he isn't. Either he's sovereign or he's not sovereign or you're going to have to alter your definition. See, if you believe that, it's going to give you an impression about God that's going to affect the way you relate to him. If you believe that sometimes God lets people just die because, you know what, you didn't study the Word enough. You hadn't paid your tithe, and so therefore you aren't going to receive the blessing of God. If you believe that, then that's going to affect your confidence level. Maybe you will believe that God can do anything, but you don't believe He will do it for you because your own conscience is condemning you and telling you that you don't deserve it. And the truth is you don't deserve it. See, that's a misunderstanding of how God operates. People are teaching that God moves in your life proportional to how holy you are. That's a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God. People are saying God is the one that sends the tsunamis. God is the one that sends the earthquakes and the hurricanes. That God is the one that causes this devastation. And you know where the number one, the number one place on the face of the earth that God is blamed for all of this stuff? The church. You know, I could excuse the unbelievers for writing in a contract that, you know, barring any acts of God, in parentheses, earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, 
etc. You can, in a sense, excuse an unbeliever for that, but the sad thing is that the church is misrepresenting the true nature and character of God more than the unbelievers are. That's a sad statement, and I'm not against the church because we got a lot of pastors here. There are good churches, but I'm saying, when I'm saying church, not everybody who's saying that they're uh, church and representing God accurately is doing it according to Scripture. And so anyway, this is what I want to deal with this weekend is to talk about what is the true nature and the true character of God. You know, I got born again when I was eight years old, and I believe I was truly born again. I mean, the next day after my salvation in third grade, uh, some of my friends were telling some, you know, dirty joke. What, what kind of dirty joke can a third grader tell? I don't know, but I wasn't into it. And they could tell something had changed on the inside of me. And they said, what happened to you? And I told them, I got born again. And my friends made fun of me the next day in third grade for being a Christian. And so I got genuinely saved when I was eight years old. And I knew God as far as knowing that He existed. He had convicted me of my sins and showed me that I needed Jesus as my Savior. And so I accepted that. But you know what? As far as really having a... Um, heartfelt revelation of who he was, that didn't come until I was 18. And when I was 18, I had this experience where God just appeared to me, not visibly, but in my heart, I just knew God. I experienced God. For four and a half months, I was just gone someplace. I don't know what happened exactly, but I knew God. And I can tell you this, my doctrine was still the same. My head was still the same. If you would have asked me, all right, so what do you believe about this? I still would have given you the doctrine of the church that I grew up in because that's what was in my head. But in my heart, I just knew something. After after encountering God like that, I knew some things. And instantly, my life changed. Instantly. I was an introvert before that time, couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to him, and instantly I was delivered of that because I saw God as He is. Another scripture that goes along with this is 1 John chapter 3. Let me just read this to you since we're close. 1 John chapter 3, look at this in verse 1. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. When He shall appear, we will be like Him, for, the word for means here's why we will be like Him, it's because we will see Him as He is. When you, you know, this is the reason that the Bible says no man can see God in his physical person while they're in this flesh, and live. The reason isn't because God is going to strike you dead or something like that. It's because if you ever really saw God as He is, you would, boom, instantly be like Him. You would be changed into that image. You could not continue to exist in this finite, corrupted existence after seeing Almighty God in all of His presence and power. And when the Lord returns and we see Him, we're going to be changed into that image. And even now, to the degree that you see Him, you will be changed into the image of God. 
If you aren't reflecting the image of God in your life, if you are having worry and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and sickness and disease, poverty, loneliness, hurt, on and on with anything, I can guarantee you, you haven't seen Him in that area of your life. If You know, I was ministering not long ago in Colorado Springs and one of my Bible college graduates was facing cancer and I was teaching on Isaiah 52, 53, and 54 and just... You know, as Paul said over in the book of Galatians, how could you have done this before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? He wasn't physically crucified in their midst, but through his preaching, he made the crucifixion of Jesus so real that he says, Jesus was crucified among you. And anyway, as I was preaching on this, one of my Bible college graduates just had the Lord reveal some things to her. She went home and studied Isaiah 52, 53, 54. She had cancer and had only been given a brief period of time to live. And she said that the next day as she was studying those scriptures, that the Word of God just came alive. She saw Jesus. And she, not with her eyes, but in her heart, she saw Jesus, saw Him take her cancer, and boom, she was healed. We had another woman, I forget which meeting this was at, but it was, um, we had two women who were on uh, crutches coming and one of them heard me preach on this same thing and was sitting at home in her uh, lounge chair. Do you remember what she had? Pittsburgh. And she was meditating on these scriptures and all of a sudden she saw it in her heart and instantly she was healed. She hadn't driven a car in eight years. She drove herself to the meeting. She was able to walk and run around the thing. I know some of you may think, well, that's a little, you're, you're overselling it. It's not this simple. I'm telling you, this is exactly how it is. When you see Him as He is, you become changed into that image. If you're sick, you have not seen Jesus bearing your sins or you'd be well. You may have some knowledge, you may have heard the words, but it's not reality. When it becomes reality, when you really see the love that He has, if you could understand how much Jesus suffered for you, any fear or reservation about, am I going to be healed, would be gone. If you could understand the tremendous price that God has already paid. But you know what? We aren't seeing these things clearly. Religion has misrepresented God and we have all kinds of weird ideas. Believing that God is the one that's killing people. That God is the one that's causing the trouble. Christians are preaching that if America doesn't repent, God's going to destroy this nation, which is totally against what the Word of God teaches. Thank you for that thunderous silence. Some of you are saying, well, you're saying that we, we aren't ungodly. No, that's not a question. We are not living up to what God wants us to do. But all of our punishment has been placed upon Jesus. And if God was to judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Jesus because Jesus bore our sins and He is not imputing our iniquities unto us is what the Scripture says. That doesn't mean that we're secure because we're in the process of destroying ourselves. We need a revival. We need to turn. And yes, we need to change. But, see again, that's misrepresenting God. If you think that God's the one that's about to get you and if you're serving God out of fear, the Bible says fear has torment. And most Christians are tormented. They, they have a desire to serve God. They know they need to serve God. 
But the reason they don't enjoy serving God is because they're doing it as a debt and an obligation and it loses all of the joy and we do not truly understand. We aren't serving God out of the proper motivation. We've got misconceptions about God. And it hinders our relationship. Let me give you an illustration of this before I go on to some other scriptures. But um, I've had horses most of my life. I've really enjoyed horses. And back a number of years ago, um, I had some people give me two horses. I already had the mares that these foals had come from. And they were going to give me the foals to go with these mares. And, and, the, and these uh, foals were now three years old. And they had never been ridden. Matter of fact, when they were born, they, they put a halter on these horses, and then they turned them out to pasture. And for three years, nobody had touched these horses. And these people were moving. They had one week to go, and the horses... I'd already hired some cowboys to go catch these horses, paid them $350 per horse to catch them and break them and bring them to me. And the cowboys wound up having to go to the hospital. They got hurt. These horses were so wild, they gave the money back. So anyway, it was one week... It was one week before the people were moving and they had already contracted with the Humane Society to just come kill these horses if they couldn't catch them because they were moving, selling the property, the horses had to be caught. So here were two free horses given to me that I was about to lose. And so I prayed over it. And before I get into this story, let me just apologize to all you horse lovers. Um, This is not the right way to treat a horse, but I didn't know that. It was ignorance on my part. I love horses, so don't come up and ream me out for doing this. But anyway, I had to catch these horses. And so I sunk a railroad tie in the middle of this pasture, and these horses would eat out of a bucket. So what I did for about four or five days, I got a big old five-gallon bucket and put oats in it, and I would go out there and stand about 10 feet from it. They'd get you, let you get within 10 feet, and I'd have them eat out of this bucket and stick their head down in there. And when they got their head in this bucket, they couldn't see. But So I'd let them eat out of that, and I did that for a few days. And then I went out and put the bucket in a normal place and put a real stiff rope around the bucket, covered it up with, with grass and dirt and stuff, and I stood there like this. And when they stuck their head down in there, I just flipped that rope over on their neck and caught this horse. And uh, I thought, that's a great idea. (laughs) But I wasn't prepared for what was going to (laughs) happen. And this horse, the name of this horse was El Shaddai. Which is a name for God, and it means more than enough. And this horse was more than enough. And when it felt that rope around its neck, this horse took off at a dead run, just as fast as it could go. And normally it would have broken that rope. Matter of fact, two days later, that horse leaned on that exact same rope and popped that rope in two. But it just, it caught this horse, and this horse was going at a dead run, and it flopped the horse back over on its back with all four legs up in the air. And then, when that happened, El Shaddai became (laughs) demon-possessed. And this horse started running in circles, kicking and bucking and making terrible noises and spitting blood and stuff out of its nostrils and other stuff out the other end. And I mean, this it was scary. Jamie was with me, and it was scary. I've never seen an animal act that way in my life. It was scary. And I started to go up and cut the rope, but the horse was going so wild, I couldn't get close. 
And so we just stood there for 20 or 30 minutes, and this horse just literally expended every bit of energy it had. Finally, it just didn't have anything left, and it, it pulled on that rope, and it was a slip knot, and it just choked it, and the horse passed out on the ground. So I walked up, sat on the horse's head, took that old halter off, put a new one on, tied it up in between two uh, railroad ties, and the horse was broken. You could get on that horse and ride it. It just, it just knocked everything out of that horse that there was. But here's my point. This horse would be standing in the pasture with its head up. It was an Arabian, and it was a beautiful-looking horse. It would see my truck drive up, and that horse would put its head down and its ears back, and it would just go to shaking like this. That horse would just literally tremble, and the whole time I was on it, it would just be shaking like this. It was just afraid of what I was going to do next. And I talked to this horse, and I said, you've totally misunderstood me. I said, I am re- I said, you may think I did all of this to you, but the truth is I saved your life. They were going to kill you. If it hadn't have been for me catching you, you would be dead. And I said, I didn't do this. All I did was put the rope around your neck. You're the one who did all that other stuff to you. And I explained this to this horse. I talked to it. I prayed with it. I did everything I knew. But did you know until I finally sold that horse, that horse would be standing there and looking good and it'd see me and it'd put its head down and just go to trembling. It had a totally wrong impression of who I was based on things that I did. But it misunderstood it. And did you know that this is the way that we are with God? God has done things, and I, in the Old Testament, there were things that God did that have been misinterpreted and misrepresented, and people see God as this harsh, angry God. A tremendous amount of our wrong impression about God comes from Scripture, which may make you think I'm speaking against Scripture. I'm not. I am 100% submitted to Scripture and believe in the infallibility of Scripture, but the Scripture teaches, and I'm going to show you this through this series, that there was a different way that God dealt with people under the new co- Old Covenant than what He deals with us under the New Covenant. And the average Christian runs all of this together and tries to make one impression of God based on these two different covenants which were contrary to each other. And I know some of you are thinking, no way. Yes way. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 7 over here. Let me show you a couple of scriptures out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 7, and we're going to be getting into this in a lot more detail. I'm just kind of laying a foundation for this. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 16, it's talking about Jesus, that He is a priest, a high priest, but He's not after the Levitical law. He came from a different tribe. It's a totally different priesthood. In verse 16, it says, "...who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of of an endless life. For He testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." There is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. The word disannulling, did you know that the word annul means to destroy, to void, to totally make inoperative? And the word disannul is just a superlative. It's, 
If the word annul means to void and to destroy and completely do away with, then the word disannul is just, it's like twice destroyed. It is completely, it's, it's no need to say disannul. If something is annulled, you don't have to disannul it. And so this is just a superlative is what he's saying. This is just saying that it is absolutely the end of the commandment going before. The Old Testament commandment is not for the New Testament believer. In verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And this same thing is just said over and over and over and over and over. Hebrews chapter 8, look at a couple of verses here. In verse um, 7, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7, it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Even under the old covenant, the old covenant prophesied the end of itself. Prophesied that there was something better coming. And yet most Christians today are still trying to relate to God based on the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are not compatible. They don't contradict each other because the Old Covenant uh, prophesied the fulfillment of itself and a better covenant coming in. And so they actually complement, and if you use them correctly, there isn't a contradiction. But if you try and live under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you can't mix the two together. And again, many of our ideas about God are old covenant ideas that were not inaccurate. Well, let me, let me say it this way. They weren't, well, they weren't inaccurate, but they were incomplete. They didn't give an accurate representation. When Jesus came, Jesus was the express image of the Father, an exact copy, copy a perfect representation. And I'm going to show you some scriptures here in just a second that shows you that if Jesus would have been present in the Old Covenant under some of the things done, He would have rebuked those people for doing those things. People who were anointed of God and used of God would have been rebuked if Jesus would have been present in His physical body because that is not the true nature and character of God. I'm saying some pretty heavy things right here. And uh, I, this is what I'm going to be doing all week long is trying to defend this and explain it. But you need to understand that there's a difference in the way that God revealed Himself. And you know what? That Going back to that horse, that horse, if it could talk, could have been telling all of its friends, but He did this to me. Well, yes, I did it, but that horse totally misunderstood. And actually, it was its own rebellion that made what I did have such severe consequences on it. If it would have submitted to me then it wouldn't have had such a, a traumatic experience. Yes, I did it, but that horse totally got a wrong impression of me. I'm really a nice guy. I am not a horse hater. Amen. But it could certainly have thought so, and I could understand how it could think that of me, and yet that's a wrong concept. So here again in verse 7 says, Now that uh, he, hath he obtained, or excuse me, verse 7, For if that first covenant have been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord." 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. You know, this is often interpreted to say that every single Jew is going to be born again I don't believe that that's what this is saying. Jesus said that there's, you know, a broad gate and a narrow gate and there's more that enter in by the broad gate unto destruction. I don't believe that this is saying that every single Jew will be born again. But this is talking about the church. I don't believe in replacement theology. We haven't replaced Israel, but, you know, here's replacement theology and then here's theology that the Jews are everything. I believe it's somewhere in between. We are spiritual Israel, God. We are now God's people. And what this is talking about is that all of us who get born again know God personally. We don't have to just depend on somebody telling us about God and just take it based on somebody else. But you can experience God firsthand. We are all taught of the Lord and we all know the Lord personally. If you've been born again, you have personal relationship with God. That's what this is talking about. And then he said in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Man, that is one radical statement. And that is part of the new covenant which most new covenant Christians are not aware of. Most Christians believe that God does hold our sins against us, that God does deal with us. They will say it in different ways. But basically, we think that God is still dealing with us according to our sins. And that's the reason we say, well, you haven't been praying. You haven't gone to church. You hadn't paid your tithes. And that's the reason God hasn't done this. God moves in our life proportional to our goodness is what most of us have been taught. And that's a misrepresentation of the gospel. This new covenant says, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities while I remember no more. Verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. There's a reason that they call this the old covenant and the new covenant. And the sad thing is most people haven't properly understood how God has revealed himself. They've misunderstood this and because of it, we've got a misconception about the nature of God. Let me say another thing here that you know what, a lot of people perceive God a certain way. And regardless of your perception of God, God is who He is regardless of what you think about Him. If you don't believe that God works miracles, that doesn't change who God is. God is still all El Shaddai. He is almighty. And God is who He is regardless of your opinion. But, here is an awesome truth. Regardless of what God is like, you will never experience God any greater than your concept of Him. Now that is a strong statement. If you don't believe that God heals, did you know you will never get healed? You don't get healed accidentally. Healing doesn't come on you like a sickness. You don't catch it. You don't get it by osmosis sitting next to a person. You have to pursue it. Here's another example. You know, speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wendell Parr down here has a great teaching about when he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and he had never heard of it, but 
some people came by and saying that uh, this pastor, uh, tongues had got him. And he had never heard of tongues. He, he could just see these tongues going through the woods, catching this guy and getting him. In. Anyway, it's really funny, his experience. But you know what? Uh, that's the way some people think of it. And if you don't have the right impression, did you know what? You aren't going to speak in tongues accidentally. It doesn't come upon you like a seizure. You have to believe. If you don't believe that miracles happen today and that God gives the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that you can speak in tongues, did you know what? You, you won't get it. Some of you may be shocked that I'm even mentioning this because I just sit down and I don't scream and froth at the mouth and run and have a towel that I wipe myself with. And You may not have realized that I am spirit-filled and speak in tongues and you're all of a sudden afraid like, oh no, I'm at one of those meetings. What's going to happen to me? I can guarantee you, if you don't want to speak in tongues, you won't. Nobody can make you speak in tongues. Nobody can make you have the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't happen that way. The way you think, if you think that God passed away with the apostles and that miracles don't happen today, did you know why? You'll never get a miracle. God will meet you where your faith is. If you believe that God is one that killed people, if you believe that God's one that causes tragedy in your life and that you're just supposed to learn something through this, did you know what? God will meet you where He is. He won't kill anybody, but you can go on thinking that. You can suffer tragedy and you can turn to the Lord and ask God for help and He'll be there to comfort you and you can learn something through any negative circumstance, but that's not who God really is. God is who He is regardless of what you think. But your experience will go 100% based on what you think God is and how He is. He will not be anything to you that you first of all don't believe Him to be. You have to pursue the things of God to get them. God is a gentleman and He doesn't force His way upon you and make you become a certain way. When I first got turned on to the Lord and I realized I had so far to go from where I was to where God wanted me to be, I remember one of my prayers I used to pray was, Oh God, I don't think I can get there. Just make me be the person I'm supposed to be. Make me do this against my will. I give you freedom right now. Just make me this way. You know what? That doesn't happen. God will not make you do anything. That is not who God is. And so, I say all of these things to say that, you know what? Your impression of God, who you think He is, determines what you're going to experience from God. And I believe that God has been maligned and misrepresented more than any person ever has been misrepresented. And we need to clarify the true nature of God. And if you could understand, as it says in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love... We say that, but then out of the other side of our mouth, right after we say, oh, God is love, we say, and if if America doesn't repent, he's going to destroy this nation and wipe us all out, and there's going to be some plague, bird flu come through, and this is the judgment of God. That's really love, isn't it? You know what? We say that God loves us, but then on the other breath, we say things that undermine that and dilute it and do away with it and take away the benefit of it. We need to get some things understood And this is what I want to do through this is just to sit here and start defending the true nature and character of God and show you 
why God has done what He's done, who He really is, what He's really like. And if you can understand this, it'll change your impression of God and it'll change the way you receive from God. Let me give you one more other Old Testament example on this. Look in 2 Kings chapter 1. This is a story of Ahaziah. He was a king of Israel. And Ahaziah fell through the um, attic of a building he was building. And apparently, I don't know what happened. Maybe it was an infection, but he was seriously sick and it looked like he might die. And so he sent some of his messengers to the god of Ekron to inquire whether he would be healed or not. 2 Kings chapter 1, in verse 2 it says, And Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in the upper chambers that was in Samaria and was sick, and he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is is it not because there is not a god in Israel that ye go to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now for those of you who aren't familiar with scripture, Ahaziah was a king of Israel. The Jews, the people of God. He was the northern ten tribes. Now the northern kingdom of Israel had gone into paganism and... and uh, Ahaziah was following in the footsteps of his father Ahab who was a very ungodly man and he should have been inquiring of God about his sickness and disease but he knew that God wasn't going to give him a favorable report and so he decided to go ask a demon god, a pagan god whether he would recover and God spoke to Elijah the man of God and told him about this and Elijah intercepted the messengers and he says you know Isn't there a God in Israel? Why are you going to Beelzebub? Because you've done this, it says in verse 4, Now therefore thus saith the Lord, Thou shalt not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And Elijah departed. And when the messengers turned back unto him, he said unto them, Why are you turned back? In other words, he knew they hadn't had time to make it to Ekron yet. And so he says, Why would you turn back? And they said unto him, There came a man up to meet us, And said unto us, Go, turn again unto the king that sent you, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that thou sendest to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore shalt thou not come down from that bed on which thou art gone up, but shalt surely die. And he said unto them, What manner of man is he which came up to meet you and told you these words? And they said unto him, He was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. You know, this is interesting to me. They said he's a hairy man and he's got a leathern girdle, and he says, It's Elijah. (laughs) Apparently, Elijah must have had quite the reputation for the way he looked, because that that small description pegged him just immediately. I read some commentators, they believe that Elijah had a beard down to his knees. I don't know if that's what they were referring to when they said he was a hairy man. And his clothes must have been quite a fashion statement too, uh, apparently. But he immediately knew who this was. And again, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, Ahab, the father of Ahaziah, had been king, of course, before Ahaziah was. And Ahab... uh, his palace, he looked out the window and he saw this vineyard next to him. There was a very nice vineyard and Naboth was the owner of it. 
And Ahab went out and asked Naboth to sell him the vineyard. He wanted the vineyards because it was pretty and it would, he wanted it for himself. And Naboth said, no, this is my family's inheritance. I will not sell it to you. And so Ahab, the king, went into his palace and was crying because he didn't get his way. Somebody wouldn't sell him their vineyard. So here's the king crying. And Jezebel, the queen, comes in and finds her husband crying and says, What's wrong? And he says, Naboth won't sell me the vineyard. And so she says, Aren't you the king? Leave it to me. And so she went out and had Naboth killed. And then she came in and told Ahab, says, Arise and take possession. So Ahab got up, went down, was walking through the vineyard. It was now his vineyard. And he turned a corner, and there stood Elijah. And he said, Have you found me, my enemy? And Elijah says, Your sins have found you out. He says, Because you've done this thing, he says, Dogs are going to lick your blood in the very place where you had Naboth killed, and dogs are going to eat Jezebel in the portions of Jezreel. And it came to pass exactly like that. Ahab went out to battle. He got wounded and died, and they brought his chariot down to the vineyard to wash it out and the dogs licked his blood in the exact spot where he had Naboth killed. At this time, Jezebel was still alive, but later on, Jezebel uh, had a king, Jehu, who God anointed, came in, and he uh, took over the city of Samaria, and uh, Jezebel painted herself up, is what the Scripture says, and looked out a window, and he said, Who's on the Lord's side? And he had these people push Jezebel out of this window, And she fell a couple of stories, and he ran his chariot back and forth across her until she was dead. And then he went in and sat down and had a meal. And while he was eating, he got a twinge of conviction, and he said, you know, she was a king's daughter. says, go out and bury her. And when they got out there, all that was left was her skull, the palms of her hands, and the bottom of her feet, and the dogs had eaten the rest of her, exactly according to the word of Elijah. So this is the Elijah and his relationship to that family. And this is why Ahaziah probably didn't send to Elijah to inquire about his deal because he feared what he might say. But when he heard that there was some prophet that issued this and what he looked like, he says, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And so look what he did in verse... um, In verse 9, it says, Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he sat on the top of a hill, and he spake unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. It's pretty strong. Man, that's awesome. If I'm really a prophet of God, let fire come down and kill you. And boom, 51 men were dead. That's awesome. And so look what happened in verse 11. It says, Again, he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus hath the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. This is a hundred and two men that were killed by fire falling out of heaven and destroying the armies that came against him. That's pretty strong. 
And so in verse 13 it says, And he sent again a captain of his third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray thee, let my life and the life of these fifty thy servants be precious in thy sight. You know, this is pretty good. A prophet, you know, they were, and he wasn't intimidated. Instead, the armies were on their knees begging him for mercy instead of him begging them. Powerful display of the presence of God. And it says in verse 14, Behold, there uh, came fire down from heaven and burned up the two captains of the former fifties with their fifties. Therefore, let my life now be precious in thy sight. And the angel of the Lord said unto Elijah, Go down with him, be not afraid of him. And he arose and went down with him unto the king. And anyway, he talked to King Ahaziah and told him he's going to die, that this was the judgment of God. And he left, and God protected Elijah. Now see, this is an Old Testament example. And in case somebody says, Well, would God really just rain fire down out of heaven and kill people? Look at this in verse... um, 12, it's the second time that the captain came out with his 50. It says, Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume thee in thy 50. And it says, And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him in his 50. It says it was the fire of God. This wasn't the fire of the devil. And it wasn't just Elijah somehow or another had this innate human power. This was the fire of God the judgment of God that fell out of heaven and killed 102 men. Now, if you don't understand this properly, that's going to give you an impression of who God is and show you the way that God wants to treat things. But look at this. Keep, you can keep your finger there if you want to go back and compare this, but look in Luke chapter 9, and let me show you a New Testament example. This is Jesus... And in Luke chapter 9, in verse 30 or 51, it says, And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, talking about uh, caught up into heaven after his crucifixion, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem." Now this tells you why the Samaritans didn't receive him. And again, you need to study the scripture to get the full impact of this because in John chapter 4, Jesus had already ministered to the Samaritan woman. And she went out and told the whole city of Samaria and it says that the entire town turned out and believed on him and received him as Messiah. They had accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. These weren't people who didn't know who Jesus was. They had accepted Jesus, but the reason they rejected him here, it says, was because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And for those of you that aren't familiar with this, this hatred between the Samaritan and the Jews were, was intense. The Old Testament law told the Jews to only marry other Jews, and the Samaritans were actually, when the northern ten tribes were conquered, the uh, king of Assyria sent colonists back and they moved in to the nation of Israel and they began to intermarry with the Jews. And so it was a polluted bloodline which the strict Jews... And there was a, a time and a place for this. When the Jews first came back out of captivity, their whole nation was in 
uh, jeopardy, whether it would even survive. And so they kicked out everybody during Nehemiah's time who had married somebody outside of the Jewish nation because they were trying to preserve the Jewish nation and reestablish the Jewish race that had been in exile. And so they got, I mean, deathly... uh, strong in this to where they refused to tolerate anybody who had married into another faith because it was polluting their bloodline. So that was one reason that the Jews hated the Samaritans. And then because the Samaritans had been rejected by the Jews, they built their own temple in Samaria and started having their own form of worship that was uh, had some pagan practices in it. And so there was a religious prejudice against the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were hated by the Jews for racial and religious reasons, the two strongest prejudices known to mankind. There was a terrible hatred. And, of course, the story of the Good Samaritan and other people like that, the woman at the well, illustrate this. And so these people had already seen that Jesus was their Messiah. But when he was on his way to go to Jerusalem and worship with the hypocrites at Jerusalem, the Samaritans rejected him even though they knew he was the Christ because of his association with their arch enemy. This was severe. In my book, this is much worse than what these captains did coming out to Elijah. All they were doing was just taking, you know, following orders. All they were going to do was take him and, and Elijah didn't really have to be fearful that they were going to do something to him. Because God protected him. When he finally went with those soldiers in 2 Kings chapter 1, God protected him. Nothing happened to him. Did you know Elijah did not have to do what he did? It wasn't a necessity. It was much worse, this situation that Jesus was in. The disciples of Jesus would have been much more justified calling fire down out of heaven than Elijah was. And yet look what happened. It says in verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this. These are the two disciples that were called the sons of thunder. You wonder why they were called the sons of thunder? (laughs) Apparently they had a little temper. And when James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? They wanted to do what an Old Testament saint had done. One of the greatest examples of a prophet in the Old Testament. They wanted to emulate him. They had scriptural precedent for what they were going to do. And they thought it would glorify God to let fire come down out of heaven and kill all of these Samaritans. Look what Jesus said. He turned and rebuked them and said, You know not what manner of spirits ye are of, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy man's life but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus' disciples wanted to do exactly what was done by Elijah, and Jesus rebuked them for wanting to follow a scriptural example. And some people thought, I don't understand this. The way you understand it is there's a difference between the way God dealt with people under the Old Covenant and the way He deals with people under the New Covenant. And if you try and model your dealings with God with people based on the Old Covenant, you can wind up being rebuked by God. Or if you think that God is still dealing with us as He dealt with people under the Old Covenant, then you are going to misrepresent God and give people an impression of God that is going to drive them from God or either have them serve God out of fear instead of serve God out of love, and it's going to hinder their relationship with God. 
And this is exactly what's happening. Let me say it this way, that if Jesus would have been on the earth during the time that Elijah was alive, and if Elijah would have tried to call fire down out of heaven, Jesus would have rebuked Elijah. That was not the true nature and character of God. God is a merciful God. And yet the Old Testament shows some tremendous wrath and severity from God that has been misunderstood and misrepresented in people today. Every, every time you find a person who says, I'm a prophet, they always want to be like Elijah and stick their finger out and have fire fall and somebody be killed or prophesy that you're going to be destroyed or this or that. And did you know what? If you're trying to be like Moses, like Elijah, like these prophets, you would be rebuked. If Jesus was here in his physical body, there is a different way of God dealing with people. New Testament prophets do not go around damning people and judging them and saying that this is coming and this nation is going to be destroyed. That is not the ministry of a New Testament prophet. There is a difference between the way God deals with people in the New Covenant versus the way he deals with people in the Old Covenant. Is that to say that God is schizophrenic? That he was like this, now he's like this? No, God's not schizophrenic. And I wished I could tell you everything I know in one time, but I can't. You're going to have to come back, and I'll continue on through this, and I'll show you why these things happen. But real quickly, let me just give you a, a tease on this. Did you know that in the Old Covenant, a person couldn't be born again? Because Jesus hadn't been the first person to raise from the dead, and he had to be the firstborn among many brethren. Old Testament people could not be born again. They didn't have a new nature. They still had a sin nature on the inside of them. Now they recognized their need for God and they would yield themselves and call out. And in a sense, they were saved by on credit. They were saved by looking forward to what God was going to do and they obtained right standing with God. But they weren't changed. Their sins weren't wiped out. Um... David said this in Psalms chapter 32, and it was quoted in um, Romans chapter 4, but it says, David said, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, whose iniquities are covered, whose transgression are forgiven, whose iniquities are covered. David looked forward and said, Man, there's coming a day. I envy those people. That's you and me. Our sins have been forgiven. And I probably won't have time to teach on it during this series, but I've got tapes out there that shows you all of your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and even future tense sins that you haven't been, hadn't committed have already been forgiven. (laughs) David didn't have that. It was a different day. And so, since these people couldn't be born again, and they couldn't have their nature changed, This is one reason that God gave commands like go in and kill every man, woman, child, dog, cow, ox, anything that breathes. Wipe them out. Babies. Day-old babies were commanded by God to be killed. And you know, we look at that and think, man, that's harsh. And we get an impression that, man, God is a tough God. But actually, it was because those people could not be converted and changed in the way that we are used to today. They couldn't have their nature changed. And some of you, this may be a big leap for you, and you may not understand this, but I really believe it after studying not only biblical things, but extra biblical material. These people were so given over to demon worship 
They sacrificed their children to demon gods. They, it was common to have bestiality, not only homosexuality, but bestiality. Their animals were demon-possessed. And these people were so given over to demonic things that God couldn't change their nature. The only thing He could do for the sake of the human race was basically to wipe out these cultures and stamp out that demonic stuff. He couldn't stop it the way that He could change a person's heart today. And it was actually an act of mercy on the human race. It was terrible judgment on the individuals, but it was actually an act of mercy on the human race as a whole to go out and wipe out entire cultures because they were demon-possessed down to the children. The animals were demon-possessed. This is also why the Old Testament law said that if a child speaks against his parents and if they rebuke him and if he does it a second time, you stone him to death. If a child ever spoke bad about their parents after the first time they were reproved, the second time, the parents had to be the first one to stone them to death. Now, you know what? Some people say, I still believe we're supposed to be living under the law today. (laughs) You know what? We wouldn't have near as many kids around. Man, some of you children that think you got it bad... You ought to be glad you aren't living under the Old Testament law because I guarantee you things that are commonplace today, you would be dead. But you know why they were so strict? Because that spirit of rebellion, and it's a spirit of rebellion, is demonic, and Old Testament people couldn't be delivered. Did you know that in all of the Old Testament there's only 15 references to Satan? And 12 of those are in the book of Job. And all of those were written by the narrator. Job didn't know that Satan was involved in anything. So actually those were all behind the scenes. We only have that in a record in retrospect, but they didn't know about the devil during that time. And so there's only three references of Satan outside of the book of Job. And two of those references are the same instance. One's recorded in Chronicles and the other one in in, uh, Samuel. So if you look at it as the book of Job is one reference to Satan... Then there's only two other mentions. Three times Satan is mentioned in all of the Old Testament. Did you know in the New Testament there are some chapters that have more references to the devil and demons than all of the Old Testament? One of the reasons for that is because people under the Old Covenant didn't have authority over the devil. They couldn't take authority. They couldn't bind the devil. They were under his dominion and under his charge. We are a totally brand new breed of people. We have different rights and privileges. And so when somebody became demon-possessed and had given themselves over to the devil, it had to be dealt with like a cancer or an infection. Sometimes you'll lop off a person's leg or cut off their hand, which you think, man, that's a terrible thing. That is a severe, extreme action. But did you know that that can be an action of mercy if that infection is going to destroy and kill the entire body? Living without a foot is better than dying completely. And as severe as it was to kill your kids if they talked back to you, to go in and wipe out everybody, men, women, and children. Some people see that, see, and, they, and God did command it. But they misunderstand that it was because it was in a day and age where Satan was so rampant and the body of Christ didn't exist yet, people couldn't be changed, that it was the only way God could deal with this infection called sin in the human race. And there was severe, harsh 
punishment. And yet we live in a totally brand new age to where if you were to do the same thing, if you want to kill your child today because they smarted off to you and you go back to Deuteronomy and say, right here it's a command, you would be rebuked for doing that same thing today. We live under a different day and age. If you want to go back and implement some of the Old Testament standards and punishments on your sin and stuff, you would be rebuked by Jesus today for trying to implement and follow the example of Old Testament prophets who call fire down out of heaven. And I've given you a scriptural example. It is not the way that God really intended it to be. Maybe it's okay to amputate something if you don't have a cure, but now we've got a cure. And it's absolutely wrong for you to be executing the wrath and the judgment and the punishment of God the same way as before Jesus came and provided a remedy for that sin. We live under a different day and under a different covenant. And today we see God through Jesus in a way that you could have never seen God in the Old Testament. There was types and shadows... But now, no longer is it a type and shadow. We can see God for who He truly is, and Jesus is the proper representation of God. In the 8th chapter of the book of John, we find a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery, and the Jews brought her to Jesus, wanting Jesus to condemn her. According to the law, He had to condemn this woman to death, and if He didn't stone her, He could have been stoned to death. You had to enforce what the Old Testament law said, and if you didn't do it, then you could become a part of that judgment. And so the Jews thought they had Jesus because he'd been preaching on mercy and grace and that God loves the sinner and that God isn't imputing man's sins unto them, and they thought they had him because here's a woman taken in the act of adultery. If he executes the judgment that the Old Testament law demanded, then all of his people who were drawn to him because he was preaching mercy and grace... Would, be, would, would leave because he was a hypocrite. He bowed to pressure and he was just as condemning and legalistic as the Jews were and so that he'd lose his following. But if he didn't condemn her, they had a scriptural reason to kill him. They figured they had him. No way out of this. But you know what? Jesus said, He that's without sin cast the first stone. He didn't say she didn't deserve to die he didn't say that she wasn't wrong. Matter of fact, later after everybody left, he says, where's your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus called it sin. It was sin. It was wrong what she did. But Jesus didn't condemn her. Instead, he extended mercy towards a woman taken in the very act of adultery completely contrary to what the Old Testament law demanded. And you know what? Many of us today, I'm saying this in love, but many of us have had the Old Testament law mixed with the New Testament and reinforced and said so many times that you know what? If Jesus was here and if he let a woman taken in the very act of adultery go, we would be on the side of the scribes and Pharisees wanting to condemn him and say, you're wrong. And yet we're the ones that are wrong. Jesus gave us the proper representation of God the Father. He showed us God in a way that the Old Testament law never showed us God. He is the express image of God. He is a perfect representation. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. And Jesus expressed mercy and grace that was forbidden under the Old Testament. And today, most New Testament Christians 
are still living under that Old Testament wrath, having never understood the fulfillment. They have a misunderstood impression of who God is. And because of it, it's not that they doubt God's ability. They doubt God's willingness to use His ability on their behalf because they still think God is dealing with us according to our sins. They still think God is imputing sins unto us. But the Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. The law did impute our trespasses unto us. Jesus wasn't operating under the law. I believe John 1.17 says that uh, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We are under a different covenant, a different way of God revealing Himself. Now this begs a number of questions, which I can't answer tonight. I've got to quit. I don't ever finish. I just We're going to stop and start again tomorrow morning. But this begs the question, well then why did God give this? Why did God give us something if that wasn't really the right thing? I'm going to try and explain all of that starting tomorrow morning. And I tell you, I know some people think this is too deep. Most people go to church to be entertained or similar to a pep rally to where you have somebody, rah, 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 you can do it, go for it, go for it, and get you all worked up and fired up so that you're ready to go out and do something, but you don't know a blooming thing. Matter of fact, you, you leave the service and you, you say, yeah, it was great. What did they preach on? I don't know, but it was great. That's what most church is. It's all fired up, get ready, and we couldn't tell you. We, we don't have a clue what God is like, how to relate to Him. And so this is not your typical service. Some of you haven't been entertained. Nobody's jumped a pew. Nothing has happened. And some of you may feel like you hadn't been in church. But you know what? This is good for you. All things that pertain unto life and godliness come through the knowledge of of him, And I can promise you, if you've got a problem in any area of your life, you've got a knowledge problem. You need to learn who God is. And when you see him as he is, you'll be changed into that same image. Jesus is 100% victorious. When you see him as he is, you will become victorious. You'll become positive. If you're depressed, it's because you aren't looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Hebrews chapter 12 says... Consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. That's just old English for say, lest you become depressed. If you're depressed, you haven't been considering Jesus. You've been looking at your problems. If you see Jesus and see him for who he is, you cannot be depressed looking into the presence of God. Psalms chapter 16, verse 11, I believe it is, says, In the presence of the Lord there is fullness of joy. At His right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If you aren't having fullness of joy and having pleasures forevermore, you aren't in the presence of God. You are, but you don't realize you're in the presence of God. You aren't enjoying and benefiting from it because you've got a wrong impression. So, if what I say rubs you the wrong way, you just need to repent. It's like when you pet a cat the wrong way and their hair all stands up. The way you solve this problem is you just turn the cat around and keep petting. Amen. It'll all lay down. 
So if what I say rubs you the wrong way, repent. Turn around and this will go to feeling good. This will help you, praise God. <laughs> praise the Lord. So I encourage you, if you can, to come back because I'm going to be sharing some things that, uh, you know, you don't hear very often, not often enough. And this will help you to understand what God is like. And I promise you, if you can see Him for who He is, you will become like Him. You know, we're going to be praying for people here tonight, and I'm excited about that. We see miracles happen. Matter of fact, I had a couple of testimonies about a woman who came, I forget the details, but I mean severe problems. And within a month of last time we were here, we prayed with her, and she was just totally free from that and set free. We've heard some great testimonies from the last time we were here. We're going to see people healed and set free. And we're going to help you because you know what? It may be a year or two years of you renewing your mind to get to the place you need to be. And God, some of you had not got two years. And God doesn't want you to suffer. So you know what? We can pray with you and we can help you. But what I would really love to see is you receive the Word of God and get to where you can see God for yourself so that you don't have to wait until next year when I'm back. Or you don't have to wait on Pastor Steve or some of these other pastors to come and pray for you. But that you could receive directly from God. That's what God's will is. It's not wrong to have somebody else pray and help you, but it's wrong to use them as a substitute for what you're supposed to be doing. Every one of us is supposed to know God in a way that we can receive from Him and accurately represent Him. And so I'm excited about this teaching. This teaching is going to make a difference in your life if you will humble yourself and receive it. And I can promise you I'm countering a lot of tradition. If I hadn't offended you yet, come back. i got something for you. (laughs) I will counter a lot of your tradition, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Look at the results you're getting. And if the results isn't good, maybe you ought to change. Amen. If you don't like the fruit, maybe you ought to change the root. Amen. And so just because I'm saying something that isn't the way you've always been taught, that might be exactly what you need. Amen. Praise God. You know, if there's any...